You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 504 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, November 24th, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to be obviously talking about Thanksgiving, but I also want to clear a little bit of this backlog that I'm still trying to get used to with my new schedule and with us having been sick for the past three weeks, two out of those three weeks, and then one week in between was kind of a recovery before we hit it again. Hopefully we're done for this season. But I want to talk about what the Overton window is, what is parochialism, what the phrase or saying all politics is local is about, what it means to eminentize the eschaton, Let's talk more about transhumanism as well. Also declining sperm rates or sperm counts, if you will, for men since the 1970s, according to a new study from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. We will also talk about declining work ethic and men, able-bodied men, dropping out of the workforce and not going back again. And we're going to talk about academic standards, uh, in particular at a highly rated Edward R. Murrow High School in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, There's a lot to get to. There's a lot to get to. Not all of these things might necessarily uh, connect to (laughs) uh, Thanksgiving, uh, as you might uh, expect, or you might not expect them to connect at all. But I think they do, actually. And I think we do well to consider these Uh, news items, these ideas, these concepts in relation to the Thanksgiving holiday. And I'll explain why. But first, I want to talk about Thanksgiving, generally speaking, not the holiday, but the idea of giving thanks. That's where the word comes from, Thanksgiving. The name of our holiday today, it comes from the idea of giving thanks. What does that mean to give thanks? And also, for that matter, as Christians, how do we explain this? How do we model this? How do we embody a attitude of gratitude in a way that's genuine, that's meaningful, that is relevant, and that also testifies to the truth about God and honors those around us? How do we do that? Well, first off, let's start with the scriptures and let's have God's word frame our understanding of this idea of giving thanks. Philippians 4, 4 through 9, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Amen. This is not putting the blinders on. 
By the way, just to be very clear, you can't get that uh, <laughs> as your takeaway from reading the totality of God's word, the whole counsel of God. This is not about only thinking positive thoughts, and then you're going to self-actualize, and you're going to project, and you're going to name it and claim it, and it's health and wealth and all that. No, it's not that. It's not that. It is talking about the attitude that we have as opposed to being anxious, as opposed to being unreasonable. It actually is very reasonable for us to rejoice in the Lord always, in all circumstances. It is very reasonable for us to remember that the Lord is at hand and that we can put our requests at his feet. We can make our requests known to God through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And then we can have peace. That's a very reasonable thing. Actually, it's a very blessed thing. It's a very uh, safety-guaranteeing and and prosperity-producing prescription. What our thought life is, it, it makes a huge difference on how we work, how we build our relationships, how we rest. And you can't work uh, all the time without getting good rest, but you can't rest if you're always anxious. If you're restless, it, well, you are not going to have so much uh, rest, which means you're not going to be able to work for very long, will you? But if you are thinking about truth, Honor, justice, purity, loveliness, commendability, excellence. What is praiseworthy? If you're thinking on those things, if you're meditating on those things, that will have a good end. If you are imitating what you've learned and received and heard and seen in Paul, for instance, you put those things into practice and the God of peace will be with you. That is a great comfort, and that is something to rejoice in. That is something to not be anxious about, but to give thanks for. So, happy Thanksgiving to you. Happy Thanksgiving to your family. And uh, and, and really, it, it doesn't need to be, let me just emphasize this, it doesn't need to be a day of the year. This should be a mentality all year long, all year round, in every season of life, not just on the, uh, you know, particular Thursday in November that we celebrate it on here in the U.S. It should be our mindset always, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let me just emphasize. I want to say it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Speaking of reasonableness and uh, maybe anxiety as well, and also uh, giving thanks and uh, uh, you know, putting our requests at God's feet and trusting that he will do with them what is best. President Biden and his White House, his administration, put out some talking points over the past week on Twitter. And I quote, when you're chatting with your uncle at Thanksgiving. And this is your uncle who is going to be a Republican, right? That's the big thing is that Biden is trying to exploit the Thanksgiving holiday to get you to talk politics with your Republican uncle, make it awkward for everybody. And here's a whole bunch of talking points that you can throw at him one after another after another and try to humiliate him and make everybody else uncomfortable around the Thanksgiving dinner table with. Uh, great, great idea. Well, there's nothing quite like... <laughs> Uh, arguing p- 
politics over Thanksgiving to give everyone indigestion and uh, make us all the more thankful that it's once a year that we get together. Unless you're like my family, where we're sick and we are having a quiet Thanksgiving meal, just us. Uh, you know, I, you get together with some family, some friends, maybe not everybody agrees on the uh, state of the public discourse and what the government should do and what is going on in society and culture and values and trends and things like that. But I'm looking at these bullet point items and tackling inflation and lowering costs. Uh, that's one of the headings. I'm not going to read all these bullet points because they're just silly and we don't have time for that. But I'm looking at tackling inflation and lowering costs. And I'm thinking, boy, howdy, it would be really, really helpful if we weren't just printing money out of thin air and uh, it, you know, basically devaluing everybody's currency, everybody's savings, spending all of that money that is printed out of thin air on things that we clearly can't afford, raising our national debt. Uh, you know, that would be really great. That, that would be a great way of tackling inflation and lowering costs. That's not what this administration has done. Biden says he took on big pharma and won, lowering prescription drug and healthcare costs. Um, you know, what would be more impactful, again, would be not spending all our money uh, shipping it overseas to foreign countries. What would be really impactful would be not shutting down the economy and driving people out of work and discouraging them from working hard and earning and saving. Uh, what would be really, really good when it comes to making healthcare costs more manageable is if the cost of everything else wasn't going up exorbitantly. That that would be really helpful. Uh, but okay, he took on big pharma. Big pharma, uh, the, the pharmaceutical companies that were also getting enriched with mandatory vaccines and, and all that good stuff. Okay, great. You you took on big pharma, even as you told us we all had to wait to get back to living until big pharma had a solution that uh, we would all be forced to accept. Great, 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 great. Uh, worked with Republicans to rebuild America's infrastructure. I See, I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know that you really did that. Um, I just, I, 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 whatever, right? I, whatever was accomplished there as far as roads and bridges and uh, passenger rail and public transit. Uh, I think that I'm very concerned about internal combustion engine vehicles and whether we're going to be allowed to fuel our individual vehicles when we want to go, like, let's say, for instance, to grandma's house for Thanksgiving or when we want to go to the grocery store and pick up our groceries, not having to take public transportation. Uh, really, really great, especially if you live in a part of the country where there's high crime and there's lax law enforcement and uh, we've defunded the police in many cases. You don't necessarily want to be getting on public transportation uh, when uh, society is looking like it is and people will just stand by as you get violently assaulted or robbed or murdered or what have you. Uh, but great, you, you rebuilt roads and bridges even as you're making it much more difficult, much more expensive for us to drive on those roads and bridges. I, I suppose they'll stay nice for longer if we can't drive on them. So there's that. Uh, worked with Republicans to make 
more in America by passing the Chips and Science Act. Uh, you know, this really isn't the role of government to invest. Your job as the government is to create a conducive environment for other people to invest, for the private sector to invest. Your role as the government, uh, you know, top executive, chief executive, is not to do this work yourself. It's to get out of the way of people who have a vision to do the work. You don't create the good paying jobs in manufacturing. You don't need to be investing in semiconductor manufacturing. What you need to do is lower taxes, decrease regulation, and uh, maintain law and order so that it's safe for people to come here. Keep energy costs low, make it affordable for people to actually purchase uh, land and develop it by not getting in the way of uh, <laughs> financing, basically. You, you get in the way of financing by printing money out of thin air and investing it so-called, and then all of a sudden, interest rates are too high, people can't take out uh, loans, to be able to develop what they need to develop. They can't sell their homes because people can't afford to pay the mortgage cost on buying those homes. They can't afford to buy homes because the interest rates are too high. And that means that the uh, mortgage rate is going to be too high. So they can't afford to move necessarily to the places where it would make sense for them to be uh, living so they can you know, either work in these manufacturing uh, centers or they can be the ones running those manufacturing centers. You know, all of these things are related, but it's it's not the proper role of government to be investing directly. It's not the proper role to be claiming that they are creating the good paying jobs in manufacturing. No, 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 no. You get out of the way so other people can create those good paying jobs. There's a, a bit of vainglory and conceit in wanting so badly to take credit for something that is not yours to take credit for. I'm sorry. That goes for Republicans too, by the way. Not just Democrats, but Democrats are just the worst at it. Uh, just saying. Brought together Republicans and Democrats to pass the first meaningful gun safety legislation in nearly 30 years. So there's uh, another mirage for us. This is a euphemism. You're going to keep people safe here in the U.S. by removing their ability to purchase firearms and protect themselves also, at the same time, we are making economic conditions and social uh, conditions such that you will want all the more to have a firearm to defend yourself and your home and your property as people get increasingly desperate and uh, decreasingly self-controlled and decreasingly stable. So that's not so great. This is not a great thing that uh, you would tell people to go bring up with their uncle at Thanksgiving, their Republican uncle. Not not a great setup, uh, not a great plan, not something to brag about. You should feel uh, ashamed of yourselves, actually. You on the Democratic side of it and any Republicans that voted with you to restrict Americans from being able to lawfully own firearms. Shame on you. Uh, despite global challenges, we're making progress is the next big heading. And so there's this talk of, you know, Unemployment near record lows, although we'll be getting to that here in uh, just a minute, talking a bit more about what's actually going on. There's a little bit more to the story with regards to job creation, unemployment, people who are uh, in the workforce, 
rallied the world in defense of Ukraine in the face of Putin's aggression. Yeah, but see, the problem is part of the reason why Putin was willing to be aggressive with Ukraine uh, is your administration. And not just this one, but also when you were vice president under Obama, you have helped to create the conditions in which Putin thought he could get away with it, right? That, that is not so good. And also there's no exit strategy right now. You have no idea uh, what success looks like and you think you're going to win in such a way that he is totally removed or Russia completely collapses. I, I would not say so. And the longer this goes on without any kind of an exit strategy, the more likely it is we are going to have thermonuclear war and uh, that's not responsible. That is not necessary, and it's not responsible. This is the opposite of peace through strength. And uh, again, it's just like with the gun safety legislation, so-called, you should be ashamed of yourself for contributing to the conditions in which there is a higher risk of bad men doing bad things with firearms. And also, it's very, very curious that you talk about rallying the world in defense of Ukraine. Uh, how did we do that? Well, we sent weapons and ammunition and uh, weapon systems and infrastructure and other various goods to Ukraine so that they can defend themselves against Putin. And at the exact same time that you're doing that, you're also here at home railing against American citizens being able to protect their own homes, their own families, their own property, uh, their own safety from bad actors. You understand it supposedly when it comes to Ukraine but you don't understand it when it comes to uh, Americans. Very, very curious. Very, very curious. Also, too, uh, last point. Meanwhile, Republicans in Congress are extreme. Ah, yes. Okay. You know what's actually extreme is the left that wants to mutilate our children, uh, remove their genitalia, reconstruct their bodies so that they can identify as either sexless or the opposite sex. They're going to have health problems their entire life long as a result. And that's extreme. What's extreme is wanting abortion without any kind of restrictions to be the law of the land. What's extreme is promoting homosexuality through this so-called Respect for Marriage Act. That's extreme. What's extreme is not Republicans saying, no, you can't, insofar as they maintain a will to tell you no. What's extreme is not saying, hey, no, we can't afford to just print money out of thin air. That's actually what's driving inflation. Your Inflation Reduction Act doesn't actually reduce inflation. It's just more of the same. It's more of you spending and regulating, which is going to drive out companies that otherwise would be coming in and you know, bringing jobs, high-paying jobs. You're disincentivizing people to come up with these solutions on their own because you're so obsessed with getting the credit, getting the power, and redistributing it all over the world. See also our last episode about Klaus Schwab and uh, the G20, B20, soon to be O20. Uh, you guys are of the same mind in that you want to redistribute American wealth and power and prestige all over the world. And we're supposed to think that's a good idea. And uh, I, think it's, I think it's shameful. I think it's absolutely disgraceful. It's evil. It's corrupt. It's wicked. And uh, that you want to glory in your shame and encourage young Americans in particular, Gen Z in particular, uh, unmarried women in particular, who are the most fearful demographic. Go figure. I mean, there's, supposedly, there's no difference between men and women. They're totally interchangeable. But 
Yet, unmarried women instinctively vote for big government just like they don't go and get themselves married and start having some kids. If they were married, uh, statistically, they would be far, far less likely to vote for the Democrats. So the Democrats want to keep the women unmarried or encourage them to get unmarried and get on the government payroll. Uh, you know, welfare state uh, merry-go-round so that they will vote for Democrats, keep Democrats in power. But shame on this White House and President Biden for encouraging Gen Z and unmarried women in particular to make it awkward for everybody at Thanksgiving by arguing with Republican uncles. I happen to be a conservative Republican uh, voting, at least. I don't identify as a Republican, but I identify as an independent who votes Republican because they're they're the only viable option, uh, unfortunately, given the state of Republicans these days. But I happen to be the conservative uncle. And if I were getting together with extended family, if we weren't sick and if they were closer in some cases, I could be potentially this uncle that gets argued with. And uh, you know, if the uncle is going to have some class and try not to make it awkward for everybody, he might not argue back even if he's got something to say because he's got some decency and, and he wants it to not be awkward for everybody. But this administration is actually what's extreme. It is controlled by the left, not liberals, but by the radical left that wants everything to be woke and socialist. That's actually what's extreme, not the folks who say, I actually know I'm thankful for the country that we have and I want to conserve it and I want to maintain it and I want to build on the legacy that's been handed down to us. I'm thankful to previous generations. I honor uh, the good Lord above for having given us this opportunity. Let's do something with it. Now, Moving on from these talking points, because the sooner the better, right? I want to talk also about what the Overton window is, and it does relate, but this is separate and distinct, and I had to look it up, right? If you don't know, I had to look it up as well. Nobody's born knowing these things. The Overton window is the range of policies politically acceptable to the mainstream population at a given time. It's also known as the window of discourse. And so where this comes in to my thinking this week is I was watching this sit-down pizza dinner in Tel Aviv recorded and published at the Daily Wire between Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, and newly re-elected Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And they're talking about the secret to leadership and what's going on in the West and what the history of the modern nation state of Israel has been and its relationship to socialist ideas and to the left and under Netanyahu having taken more of a let's lower taxes, decrease regulation, encourage technology development, uh, education, let's encourage corporations to come here to do what they need to do. That will lead to higher revenues. That will lead to more prosperity. That will lead to more strength and a better place at the bargaining table when it comes to trade negotiations and diplomatic negotiations, negotiating peace. One of the things that Netanyahu says in this conversation, which was really, really fascinating and really good stuff, very interesting. I would love to see more and more of the same of those kinds of sit-down chats. But one of the things Netanyahu said 
was that you have to not try to do too much too quickly before people are ready for it. And so there's a kind of gradualism where you warm up folks to the idea and you don't just try and throw them in the deep end of a cold pool you know, and shock their system, right? They're going to want to get out immediately and then they're going to want to fight you if you do that. And, and that's what we see. We see pendulum swings where there is an impatience and there is a insistence that this must all be accomplished right now immediately because I think it's what's for the best. And then people don't like that and then they react and then they vote for somebody else who's going to do the same thing in the opposite direction, in the opposite way. And they don't like that. And then you get more and more consternation, more and more gridlock, more and more polarization, more infighting. And it's not so good, right? It's not so good. But there's this thing known as the Overton window, which is a concept that there is an acceptable window of discourse. There are things that are considered okay for you to talk about, and there's a range, right? There's an upper limit to the range, and there's a lower limit to the range on, if you will, to put it in other terms, what's considered acceptable being what's not taboo, right? There are certain things you just don't talk about in a certain company because they would consider it to be bad form or impolite or rude or taboo. So the Overton window is something that is shifting and which clever, savvy people will try intentionally to shift so as to make it possible for them to accomplish the things that they want to accomplish, to get consensus and agreement on the things that they want to get consensus and agreement on. This is related to, I would say, on the left in particular, in the big government globalist types, this thing called nudge theory, which I brought up again in our last episode about Klaus Schwab and the Great Reset. I've also talked about the book by the same name, Nudge. Uh, but this is related on the left in particular to this idea of nudge theory, it can also take the form of Edward Bernays' propaganda, public relations, very manipulative advertising and uh, political campaigns, and things like talking points distributed by the White House right on the eve of Thanksgiving, so you can argue with your uncle at the dinner. It, you know, all of these things can have a bad form, but I would say they can also have a good variation. And we need to be intentional in maintaining an Overton window as Christians, as Americans who love our country, who love our families, who love our communities, who want all the same to be prosperous, to do well, to be safe. We have to be aware that there is an Overton window and we have to be deliberate and intentional in how we relate to it and how we can shift it one way or the other. You see it happening here, this last main heading, Republicans in Congress are extreme, extreme with all caps, just to let you know, they are really extreme. They're extremely extreme, extremely extreme. But this is a way of shifting the Overton window. And if it's successful, then it limits whether you're going to have opposition to your ideas. So this is a, honestly, uh, dishonest way of arguing it's a manipulative way, but you can take some responsibility for stopping it from succeeding, from pushing it in the other direction. You can tell people, hey, here's what's true and here's what's good. And I think that's a large part of what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Okay, so there's a, a boundary. 
Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Okay, there's a facilitator for you having good relationships with the people around you, having a good influence on them, exercising leadership that will help them also to rejoice in the Lord always. Uh, Remember also that the Lord is at hand. Don't forget, you don't need to be living in an anxious way. You need to be praying and giving thanks and letting your requests be made known to God, and then trusting that he is going to do what's best with those requests. Meditate on what's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. Think on these things. Honestly, as Christians, that should be our Overton window. And we should be encouraging other people by our reasonableness to have that be their Overton window as well. Why wouldn't you want truth, honor, justice, purity, loveliness, commendability. Why, why wouldn't you want excellence to be your Overton window? Of course you have to, right? You have to. But this makes me think also of Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. So the law of the Lord is perfect. That doesn't necessarily mean that any way we might relate to it is perfect. For one, we might be lawless, On the other hand, we might see in keeping the law, or maybe more to the point, insisting that others uh, are not keeping the law, an opportunity to gain advantage in a human way, in a political way. But if we keep the law the way that God intended for us, desires for us to, calls us to, we are restrained from destroying ourselves. We are restrained from poverty and folly and foolishness and strife and conflict that's unnecessary. If we keep the law, then there's a blessing, right? There's a blessing. That's the promise of Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no prophetic vision that people cast off restraint. And that's not good. See, that's bad. That's a bad thing. You don't want that to happen. Now, on the flip side, I would tell you a story about my son, Eli, and a couple of times this week, I happened to catch his having a conversation on the phone. Somebody called his phone or the phone that he and Josiah, our oldest son, uh, share. And my son, Eli, answers, and he's talking uh, on the phone with somebody. And he was just very, very slow to speak. And I thought to myself, boy, maybe I've overemphasized, right? I've overemphasized the slow to speak thing. And the person on the other end of this phone line uh, they, they don't know what to do with it. They don't know if he's still on the call or whatever. He's really thinking hard about it. And that's great, but it's a balance, right? It's a balance. You don't want to be so restrained that you can't get anything accomplished. But you also don't want to be completely without restraint and cast off restraint. To be able to go when you need to go, to be able to stop when you need to stop, to be able to slow down going into curves or when the roads are slick, those are all very valuable, very necessary uh, qualities and traits and abilities. You don't want to cast off restraint because that's a way to have accidents and to hurt yourself and to hurt other people. But blessed is he who keeps the law. The law is put there to teach us. It is a school teacher to teach us of our need for God and our need for a savior, our need for grace, our need to extend grace to one another. But it's more than that. It's not just that. It's also, you know, when Jesus is asked what the First and greatest commandment is, he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. 
The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. These two sum up, he says, these two sum up all the law and the prophets. That is to say, blessed is he who keeps the law. In other words, blessed is he who loves the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind and loves his neighbor as he loves himself. You do that, you are blessed. You do that according to how God told you to do that, you are blessed. You won't do it perfectly. Don't get self-righteous. Don't be hubristic. But neither should you not try at all just because you're not going to do it perfectly. It's not all or nothing, right? He gives more grace. Remember that. Moving on. Speaking of the Overton window, I think a <clears throat> another uh, subject I'd like to explore briefly, touch on briefly, is parochialism. What is parochialism? Well, according to Wikipedia, parochialism is the state of mind whereby one focuses on small sections of an issue rather than considering its wider context. Okay? So this is related to the concept or the saying that all politics is local, right? Parochialism. And actually, there's a little bit of interesting uh, etymological history here as far as the word parochialism, because if I look at this, uh, it actually comes from the idea of a parish, right? P-A-R-I-S-H. This is late Latin, parochia, one of the smaller divisions within many Christian churches, such as the Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or Anglican churches. So you have the local church. Is That's another way to put it. That's your parish, is the local church church. And this is to say, if you are concerned with the issues first and foremost in your local church, you start there and then you extend outwards, well, that's not such a bad idea, right? That's not a bad idea. It's not always a compliment though, right? It is typically, typically, uh, I think, used in a pejorative sense in contrast to universalism, where you're thinking, Top down, right? You're thinking big, macro. Everybody needs to be on board with this. Well, wait a second, right? Wait a second. This is the difference between collectivism and conservatism and individualism. This is actually a key difference, not just theologically, also politically. And the two are very closely related. Politics is downstream of culture. And as Russell Kirk says, culture is downstream of theology. What we believe about God informs the kind of culture that we develop. The reason for this is very simple. What we believe about God informs how we relate to the people around us, where we believe they came from, and what we believe our responsibilities are, if any, as far as relating to them, telling them the the truth, treating them with dignity. What we believe will inform the kinds of relationships that we develop that will, in turn, as you just scale that up, inform the kind of culture that we develop that over time will inform the kind of politics that we have. Because all politics is, I would just remind you, all politics is, is the process by which groups of people make decisions together. That's all it is, right? That's all politics is. I think sometimes we make too much of it. It is the business of the city. We need to not forget that, right? The the city has business to attend to. If you are in the city, you kind of want to know because it affects you, it affects your family, it affects your neighbors, it affects the people you love and you care about, unless you're completely self-absorbed, in which case, by all means, totally tune out. <laughs> but this idea, that this, this saying that all politics is local, 
this idea of parochialism, the state of mind whereby one focuses on small sections of an issue. I would say this is closely related to and informed by, in Christian history, verses like 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 through 12. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, what is this talking about? What does it look like when somebody actually embodies this and lives it out? Well, for one, what is the to do this more and more? That is to have brotherly affection, to love the brotherhood, to love the people around you in a generous way. They're already doing this. Paul says, I urge you, brothers, do this more and more. Just keep doing it, right? Don't give up. Don't grow weary in doing what is good. Keep on keeping on. Your reputation precedes you, and I'm so proud of you guys, basically. But he says, do this more and more and aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. So you think here of all of the heroes from Hallmark Channel, and I, I like I like to make fun of, I like to rib Hallmark Channel, uh, you know, leading male characters, the leading men from Hallmark Channel uh, films, because they're all the same, right? They all wear plaid and they all have sawdust in their beards and they all drive, uh, you know, fixed up old pickups and they all live in homes that they built with their own two hands and, uh, and, and they all work, you know, 15 hours a week. Because the, the the entire rest of the week they have to spend and devote to doting on uh, the main female character, and this is why it's you know a female fantasy, right? It's a it's a clean one, uh, you might say, but it's it's a fantasy nevertheless, a romantic fantasy that women have that the Hallmark Channel capitalizes on. But there's not uh, no reason, right? It's not for no reason that we regard those men as something that women are attracted to or would strongly desire to have in uh, their significant other, their husband uh, to be, or their actual husband. It's not for no reason that women would value and honor and be drawn to a man who aspires to live quietly, right? To mind his own business. So he's paying his bills. He's keeping up with the housework that he's got to do, you know, something breaks, he fixes it. Something could be better. He makes it better working with his hands, right? He's not afraid to get the tools out and actually do uh, the project himself for what purpose, right? To what end? Well, if you're Paul writing this to the brothers in Thessalonica, it's so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. What's that about? Right? What's that about? Walk properly before outsiders. Do note that the Christians in Thessalonians, uh, the Christians in Thessalonica, they have been holed before the city council early on after the gospel is first preached in this important trading uh, city in Greece. They've been holed before the city council and the charge is leveled against them that these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, right? They're claiming that they have some other king besides Caesar, and that is wrong. We won't tolerate that. And yet, you don't have a repaying of evil for evil. 
in the prescription that Paul gives, he says, aspire. He doesn't say it's necessarily always going to be possible to live quietly, but aspire to live quietly. You should want to. You should be drawn to that. That should be an ambition of yours. That should be a goal of yours. Like Cincinnati, you step in and you fight when your nation needs you, when your city needs you, when you are called to do your duty. And then as soon as you possibly can, you retire and you go back to living your quiet life on your own farm, minding your own business, working with your hands. But the prescription Paul gives is so that you may walk properly before outsiders. In other words, give them nothing to go on, right? Give them nothing. Don't give them a foothold or a handhold on you that they can say, ah, see, like we have an excuse for being abusive and mean and awful and ugly and upsetting the whole Thanksgiving feast uh, once a year with talking points from this president and this administration, right? We have no excuse, right? Be dependent on no one. Here's another big idea. And this is antithetical, antithetical to the Democrat plan for government and American uh, society. This is antithetical. Be dependent on no one. Work hard, live quietly, mind your business, walk properly before outsiders, be dependent on no one. Boy, howdy, that is a very conservative vision for how to have a blessed life as a Christian in the New Testament period, particularly when there's a lot of animus against you. There's a lot of animus against the gospel. There's a lot of animus against our Savior. They hated him first. Of course, they're going to hate us. A servant is not greater than his master. But this is very, very interesting to me. And I think this is a good sense of parochialism. I think this is part of where we get parochialism as a state of mind in Christian tradition, where we focus on what is our business first, right? Jesus says, if you say to your brother, come here, let me get the speck out of your eye, even while you've got a plank in your own eye, you're a hypocrite. You're play acting, you're pretending at virtue that you don't actually possess, and you don't want to possess more to the point. But if you first remove the plank from your own eye, then you can see clearly, and then do, by all means, offer to help remove the speck from your brother's eye, which you can actually see now. And he will probably actually want to hear uh, you offer once he sees what a benefit it's been to you that you remove the plank from your own eye. Moving on, uh, Andrew Gilman, a little bit more on this whole all politics is local idea. According to Wikipedia, Andrew Gilman argues that the local here refers to the fact that politicians need local skills to win the primary election that gets them into their safe seat and they need backroom political skills in the state legislature to keep their safe seats every 10 years. Gelman also argues, citing data for elections since 1968, that politics is less local than it used to be. Okay, that's a direct quote. But I want to point out a few things, and this is the compare and contrast. This is where we depart from Wikipedia. We say, Wikipedia is woefully inadequate uh, for our purposes. It, it might be a tool that uh, is useful to a certain point, gauging what is the popular sensibility, popular understanding of these things. But again, this is such a a shallow way of looking at all politics being local in comparison to what First Thessalonians 4 has to say, what that offers for us. You know, an interesting thing. I, I know he's a controversial figure. I know he is. 
But I did read the biography of the Apostle Paul that was written by N.T. Wright. I did read it. And I thought, as far as biographies go, it was quite good. Not that uh, I'm, I'm sure what to make of his theology outside of the book. I probably don't agree with uh, a lot of the positions he would take. But nevertheless, it was a good biography. And one of the things he says at a certain point is that nothing could be more political than the gospel message and what the church was doing. It was not for no reason that, uh, you know, Jews and Greeks that didn't like these converts to Christianity in their own city hauled Jason and some of the other uh, converts before the city council. It was not for no reason that the point of attack, the angle of attack, was they're saying that uh, there's some other king besides Caesar. We have no king but Caesar, right? It's not for no reason that they recognize this as a political threat and an upset. This is a paradigm shift. The Overton window, if you will, was not, (laughs) it was not wide enough, and it wouldn't be for hundreds of years for those Christians to be able to make an even-handed argument and be heard by these men. And that's always been the case, depending on who the demographic is. You will have people in your community that don't want to hear it, and they scoff at all that. And uh, that's between them and, and the good Lord. But we have a responsibility to testify to the truth, to mind our own business, to work with our hands, to aspire to live a quiet life, right? We have, an, we have a responsibility and to be dependent on no one, to have that be an ambition of ours, to let our reasonableness be known to all, to give thanks in everything, not to be anxious for anything, but to give thanks in everything. We, I think, should reckon with the need for not just skills, right? There's this talk by Andrew Gelman in the Wikipedia article of needing local skills. No, no, character, right? You need character and you need to know truth. And that means you've got to study and that means you've got to meditate on and think on and remember these things and live according to them consistently. And if you do that, if you maintain a good reputation with outsiders and you know the truth and you speak and articulate the truth in a reasonable way, in a respectful way, you do that and then you will win, you know, whatever the equivalent is. It might not even be officially uh, some political office, but you will win with the people around you in a way that pleases God, in a way that God calls us to, right? It's intensely political. Nothing could be more political, as N.T. Wright says, although it, it doesn't look like the way that the world does politics because there's so much more life and there's so much more of a robust prescription not just for our material needs, not just for getting us to do what somebody wants us to do, but heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love the Lord your God with all of that. And you might just show other people as well. You might just be salt that's not lost its savor, right? Consider also Isaiah 3, right? I've talked about Isaiah 3. We've gone there, and I think Isaiah 3 is relevant here insofar as you have judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. And a big part of the judgment in the first few verses of the uh, chapter has to do with taking away support and supply from Jerusalem and Judah. 
not just bread and water, not just food and drink, but people who are critically important to the maintenance of your body politic. Soldiers, mighty men, so strong men, men who are strong, right? They're not even all necessarily soldiers. Some of them are just strong men. Judges, prophets, diviners, elders, captains of 50, men of rank, counselors, the skillful magician, the expert in charms. I will make boys their princes. Well, you know what? That might not be such a great thing. That might not be such a great thing. They're not ready to be the prince. They're not ready to rule over you. And yet, infants shall rule over them. That's what verse 4 says. Infants shall rule over you. The people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow, and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. See, this is what happens when a people and a nation is under judgment. And I think we recognize these things in our political situation. Insofar as our political situation has become godless, we don't even believe that it's possible to have strong men. We don't even believe that such things have ever existed and been good, right? Soldiers, judges, prophets, diviners, elders, captains of 50, the men of rank, counselors, skillful magicians, experts in charms, all these things, maybe with the exception of the magician, uh, we don't need magicians. God says no uh, on the whole magic thing, witchcraft thing. But what we see here is these things are necessary. And also too, those being taken away is punishment. It is corrective, also potentially destructive, not just corrective. If you turn and you repent, well then, we can say that it was corrective. If you're destroyed though, well then, that's not corrective. And this is something that Benjamin Netanyahu talked about as well. It's interesting. These things come full circle when you look at the modern nation state of Israel and you realize these people, the Jewish people, have been dispersed throughout the world for hundreds and hundreds of years. Since God handed them over, Judah and Israel for playing the harlot, for forsaking their God. The people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow. That reminds me of Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, where he talks about the worst treatment of person against person in the concentration camps, in Nazi concentration camps during World War II, it was not the guards against the Jewish men and women. It was prisoner versus prisoner. It was what the prisoners were willing to do to one another that was the most heinous and cruel and awful and heartbreaking and devastating. But those who survived were those who believed that there was purpose to their life. Those who helped others believed that they belonged to that person that they were helping in some sense as people, right? As people, as a shared heritage, they had a loyalty to that. They had purpose and belonging, and it helped them to survive. The people who gave up on purpose and belonging, they either became monstrously cruel and destroyed other people before destroying themselves, uh, or they just gave up entirely. And so where are we at, right? Where are we at with regards to that dynamic in our day? Well, I've got some concerning news. I mean, this is Thanksgiving, and we should be thinking on what is good and true and honorable and praiseworthy and excellent and all that. But like I said before, it's not blinders. We do have to reckon with these things. We have a lot to be thankful for. 
one of the things we have to be thankful for is the opportunity to aspire to live a quiet life, minding our own business, working with our hands, being dependent on no one, right? We can be thankful for the opportunity to do that, also to let our reasonableness be known to everyone. But another phrase, right? Another phrase I turned to Wikipedia to help me define for you this concept of imminentizing the eschaton. What is that, right? What is that? You know, I was watching some interviews with Stephen Wolf and Doug Wilson and Jared Longshore and some conversation back and forth between Doug Wilson and James White about this book that Stephen Wolf wrote called The Case for Christian Nationalism. And one of the things that comes up again and again is this idea that you don't want to be accused of and you don't want to be you don't want to be guilty, actually, more to the point of this being true. Imminentizing the eschaton. Well, what is it? In political theory and theology, to eminentize the eschaton is a pejorative term referring to attempts to bring about utopian conditions in the world and to effectively create heaven on earth. Theologically, the belief is akin to postmillennialism, as reflected in the social gospel of the 1880 to 1930 era, as well as Protestant reform movements during the Second Great Awakening in the 1830s and 1840s, such as abolitionism. That's what Wikipedia says. And I ask, how does that relate to transhumanism? Some people might be saying they're very concerned about Christian nationalism. Maybe it is concerning. I think I disagree with Stephen Wolf on a few particular items that he's for. Uh, But there might be room for us to disagree and still broadly be categorized together. Uh, I don't know. I'm still pondering that. But I think a better target for criticism compared with Christian nationalism is wokeism. I think a better target for our criticism is what the Democrats are attempting. Also transhumanism and globalism. And we touched again on a lot of things in our last episode about Klaus Schwab, the great reset, et cetera, et cetera. But he wrote a book called The Fourth Industrial Revolution, in which he popularized this idea, this prediction as to what the Fourth Industrial Revolution is going to be. Essentially, he's been accused of advocating transhumanism. So he, he wants all these technologies to augment our capabilities and offset our limitations and allow us to live forever and to become like gods, uh, but I would say also inhuman and potentially dead. And uh, the idea is to, to bring about a utopian vision for the future. They want to exploit, and that's the word I would use, absolutely. Uh, if they didn't cause it, they certainly want to exploit it and not let it go to waste, this crisis of COVID and all of the political turmoil and what it's done to the economies of the world, which they shut down. They caused that. They might not have released COVID, but they did shut down the economy of the world and the economies of nations, and the economies of homes, more to the point, like mine. They want to exploit all of the chaos, disruption, upset, to engineer a new future for humanity, for the world, where they are the government of the world, and they bring about heaven on earth. If anyone is guilty of imminentizing the eschaton, it's the Klaus Schwab crowd. It is the World Economic Forum crowd. It is the Great Reset folks. It is the woke. It is not 
first and foremost, the Christian nationalists so-called. Whether everybody who's a Christian nationalist so-called is all in agreement, as already stated, I'm not so sure that we all would be, even though we're all called this thing by those who hate our ideas and hate Christ. More to the point. But transhumanism, remember, this is a philosophical and intellectual movement that advocates the enhancement of the human condition. And this is a direct quote by developing and making widely available sophisticated technologies that can greatly enhance longevity and cognition. It's a very curious thing that transhumanism places such a high value on augmenting human potentiality, particularly of our minds, our memories, our being able to, I suppose, at some point, just think and draw on all the vast knowledge of Wikipedia without having to look at a screen. It's just in our minds. Whatever Google has to say for something, like Joe Rogan talking with Matt Walsh and saying, oh, I don't know, we should just Google it, right? What is the definition of marriage? Let's just Google it. Well, wait a second. Don't you expect Google to be manipulating the definition so as to manipulate this discussion of what marriage is? You should. You should expect that, Joe Rogan. But it is curious. It's curious transhumanism at the same time that it advocates for the enhancement of the human condition by developing these very sophisticated hacks of our lifespan and our brain capacity. We're also seeing modern man who wants that, who wants to pursue that more, not wanting to have any children. That's very, very curious. It's a very, very curious combination of trends. We want the transhumanism. We don't want to have children. Curious. We're going to live a lot longer and have fewer children. We want to have a fuller life, a more self-indulgent life. We don't want to be saddled, burdened with children. And the curious thing is, you might actually find, as more and more experts looking at the demographics are warning, folks like Elon Musk are warning, you might just find that you are selling your future happiness down the river by being self-indulgent now. You might not get all the transhumanist uh, you know, fountain of youth effects. And also when you're old and you can't work anymore and you can't take care of yourself and you get sick or you're just weak, you're just tired, you're not going to have any children to take care of you and the robots won't be that far along just yet. Or, 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 or society will just decide to euthanize you. You won't get to live longer. You'll actually have a shorter, more brutish lifestyle and then it's over. And the joke might be, it's a, it's a dark humor joke. I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh. But uh, the joke might be on those who were living for the moment when those who said, like my wife and I did, we're going to have children. We get a longer, fuller life full of moments to live for, actually, by heeding what God's word says about marriage and family. Along similar lines, a very curious report uh, I found at the Daily Wire this week. I really wanted to talk about sooner, but it just is too much this week with us being sick and work and all the rest. But Zach Jewell, he published this piece November 15th. Uh, so actually over a week ago, but then I came across it this week. Huge problem for society. New study finds sperm concentration has halved worldwide problem accelerating. Now you, if you've got children listening and I 
I just blindsided you with that. Uh, I'm sorry. Sorry. It is Thanksgiving. Uh, but nevertheless, without getting too graphic here, I quote, a new study from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem found that sperm concentration has fallen drastically among men worldwide since the 1970s, and the drop is accelerating. Very curious. Since the 1970s, 1971 is when the WEF was founded. 1973 is when abortion was legalized. Lots of bad things have happened in the past 50 years. Roe v. Wade was just recently overturned, although we've seen state laws enacted in some places, basically to be more extreme. The Biden administration wants to talk about extreme Republicans. To be more extreme than Roe v. Wade was in affirming infanticide and the murder of unborn children. And yet at the same time, something else is happening as well. Men are less fertile. So female fertility, male fertility works a little bit differently. We're also having some problems with female fertility uh, reported widely for women who got the vaccine. But for men, something is happening over the past 50 years that has their sperm count dropping 51% between 1973 and 2018. It's a huge drop. That's a huge drop. There's a lot of theories as to why this might be. This could be because of modern diets, modern lifestyle. We're getting soft. We have less testosterone. We're more sedentary. We're working less with our hands. We're less masculine. Men are, you know, if men have less testosterone, that's a factor. Also, I would point out because another recent study uh, I was looking at was talking about women who are on birth control preferring men with more feminine features in their face, but women who are cycling naturally, normally, especially when they're at the peak of their cycle, they prefer men with more masculine features, uh, facial features. I think part of what you have going on here is generation over generation over generation over the past 50 years, women on birth control marrying men who are less manly and having children with them who then also are less and less inclined genetically to have testosterone. Also, not raised to be as manly, to be as macho. And and the irony, if that's true, if that's actually part of what's in the mix here, the irony is all the woke folk want to talk about is toxic masculinity. You know what actually might be the toxic masculinity here is women on birth control selecting men who are more feminine and then only having children with the men who are less masculine over the past 50 years. That actually might be the more toxic masculinity and that it's very closely related to toxic femininity, which is to say it's just selfishness expressed differently for men and women. That's all. It's just selfishness. It's selfishness and it's, and it's folly. If all of a sudden men and women are just not able to have children anymore, not able to have children anymore. Who's going to be the one sad, brokenhearted? Is it going to be the one with a house full of sick kids? You know, wife, himself, eight kids, all sick the past week to three weeks. Or on a day like Thanksgiving, does someone like myself look at these trends, look at what's going on here and think, man, I am so thankful that we have children. I am, I am so thankful. There's a lot of things we've struggled with. Don't get me wrong, especially economically, getting married 
right on the verge of the Great Recession, 2008. Going through a boom-bust cycles, working in the oil and gas industry, which really did turn the page for us as a household, being able to buy a home and get a decent vehicle and all that. One thing that we have not struggled with is fertility. We do not have problems with fertility, with the exception only of some health problems my wife was having here a few years ago, which we've since gotten diagnosis for and partly genetic, partly diet related, although the diet related aspect is also related to the genetic thing. So it's, it's it was genetic that we can manage now through supplements and treatments and such. But other than that, we don't have problems with fertility. So that's great. <clears throat> also, I'm uh, just saying, if all of a sudden most of the people in the world are not able to have children anymore, uh, I got seven sons who come from good stock. Just, just saying, just saying, I, I think the mullet name will live on by God's grace. On a related note, I think this whole business with male fertility falling off drastically, 51%, that's mind-blowing, 51% since the 1970s. I think this is related also to able-bodied men opting out of the workforce. And I want to explain what I mean by that, why I would say that, what all goes into that calculation. But first, I want to play a clip of Micro on Tucker Carlson talking about men leaving the workforce, able-bodied men leaving the workforce, not going back, even as there are jobs that they could have. Take a listen. I'm wrong about as much as I am right. Yep, me too. And it's it's, for that reason, I hate to say I told you so out loud ever. Yep. But for 15 years, my foundation has been talking about this slow sort of unraveling of what we loosely call work ethic, whatever that means. Yes. And now between uh, Nick Everstadt's work, an economist who's really drilled down on it, and I mean, I, last week there was an article in the New York Times called something like How to Combat the Assault on Modern Work. And I thought it was going to be an article about coal miners or crab fishermen or, you know, big tough jobs where the danger is real. It wasn't. It was, it was an article about everything from paper cuts to the non-existent pet bereavement policies that are being deemed hard. I'm, I'm not making it up. And so we are, we're in a place where 7 million able-bodied men are not only not working, between the ages of 25 and 7 40, million? 7 million able-bodied men are not only not working, they're affirmatively not looking for a job. That's never happened in peacetime, ever. And economists like Nick Eberstadt take a dim view of it. They're worried, and they're trying to inject that into the conversation at a time when we're still looking at the unemployment number as the true harbinger of what's really going on. But it's not. In his view, it's a Depression-era artifact. We're just looking at the wrong thing. We're looking at not what it means to have a bunch of people unemployed, but what does it mean to have a bunch of opportunity that nobody gives a damn about? That's a different conversation. And it's complicated to have because while that dynamic is clear and present, so too is the fact that a lot of big companies in Silicon Valley are going to lay off a lot of people. And now you're going to have a bunch of people who aren't trained for the jobs that do exist, sort of competing with people who have affirmatively taken themselves 
out of the workforce entirely. And who, final point, I ask Nick, what are they doing? What are they doing with their time, these able-bodied Yes, men? good question. On average, over 2,000 hours a year on screens. So they're just totally hypnotized by they're digital out. world. They're out. They're out. So that's wild, right? That's wild. Millions of men, seven million, just not working. They are, if you ask them, not looking for a job, not working, not interested. And what he says <laughs> they're doing instead, according to this uh, economist he spoke with, Roe, Mike Rowe, what you have them doing instead is they're watching 2,000 hours a year of various things on their TV, their computer, their phone. They're just entertaining themselves, presumably, amusing themselves to death, like Neil Postman wrote about. But also, too, I mean, notice, notice what goes into the decision, especially post-COVID. And think about this. We told millions and millions and millions of Americans, stay home, whatever you were going to do outside your house, it's not important. Your work, not important. Going to church, not important. Going to school, not important. Getting together with family, not important. Here's some money. Go shopping. That's important. Buy groceries. That's important. Stay home. Don't get sick. Don't get anybody else sick. You're non-essential. Unless you were essential. I I was considered a, an essential worker, but it grieved me that a whole lot of others were told you're non-essential because I think that's a devastating statement if it's not true and somebody believes you, it's a devastating thing that we're still feeling the effects of. I mean, the, everything to the response to COVID was wrongheaded and foolish, and now we pay for it. It wasn't 15 days to slow the spread. It was two years and counting. Going on three years before we know it here, we're nearly there. And a lot of companies, even when people got back to work, a lot of companies were absolutely terrified because an environment of fear and repression was created on the left and with the mainstream media wanting to push Trump and his allies out of power here in the US. This great reset mentality was going to purge political dissidents from the government and the military and polite society. If you went to work if you were allowed to go to work, you were told, wear this mask all day, get the vaccine or you're fired, don't criticize, question, second guess, push back at all, take any personal initiative. No, no, we will tell you what to do. And if you at all disagree, you're going to be treated horribly. You're going to get let go, potentially. You're going to be passed over for promotions. It's going to become a hostile work environment, even if they don't fire you, to where you're going to want to leave. And for young people who maybe they were in college or early in their working life, the left in academia and in pop culture and in the media and in the government is making this case for why you need to just let them make all the decisions. You've got people advocating for socialism. Do nothing. You'll make the same as if you work really hard at it. If you work really hard at it and you make a lot, well, then you should feel bad because that couldn't have been legit. That must have been fraudulent. That must have been dishonest, inherently unjust, repressive, racist even, misogynistic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
there's a lot of disincentives for young people, especially young men, especially going into the workforce. Affirmative action quotas, women's empowerment quotas, LGBTQ promotion, not to mention stagnant wages, coupled with rising costs of everything else. There's a lot of disincentives going on. And for those who are not Christians, for the godless, they don't have the Protestant work ethic of days past, days gone by. They don't have the Protestant work ethic of previous generations. Our education system has purged that from them and told them if you have that Protestant work ethic, well, that's just another repression. That's just another euphemism for you trying to defraud minorities, people of color, women, sexual minorities, racial minorities. It's Howard Zinn, right? It's Howard Zinn. I think we've seen also the idea of making a profit at all manipulated into this bad thing by those who want to push for socialism. In all toil, there is a profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. What are these men who are opting out of the workforce doing instead of going and getting a job? They're sitting on a screen. They're listening to somebody talk. They're listening to somebody play some music. They're watching a movie. They're playing a video game or a computer game. And it's not to say that those things are totally bad, but it's a full-time job. 2,000 hours a year. That's 38.46 hours a week. Like it's a full-time job that they're just watching screens. I think this is also why you see a lot of folks abusing substance, drugs, alcohol, committing suicide over the past few years. And what are we giving them instead to say, here's your purpose, here's your belonging, going back to Viktor Frankl. What are we doing to give them a reason for working with their hands, aspiring to live a quiet life, being dependent on no one? Everything else is pushing for them to be dependent on the state or society. And without the influence of the church and Holy Scripture, what except for secular Republican, secular conservative talking points do you have to say it's better for you to work? You have talking points coming from the president about what all they've accomplished. Well, they've already accomplished everything. See, you don't need me. You guys can do it all. You don't need me. And also, why would I work hard when you're just going to devalue my earnings? You're going to tax them. You're going to tax them openly. You're going to tax them in a hidden way through inflation. You're going to send my money overseas to foreign countries. Biden launched a special initiative to promote women coming up with solutions for the uh, climate change problem. So we're especially going to give money to women so that we can make the women the ones leading this more in the interest of diversity, equity, inclusivity, but also too as a way of emasculating men. We'll tip the balance of power towards these unmarried women especially, because we know that they vote Democrat, they push for progressive ideas, they vote with the left, they need a big government to protect them because they don't have a husband to watch over and protect and provide for them. They need the government to do that. I think this is also upstream of the dynamic highlighted in a piece at the New York Post from November 19th by Georgia Worrell and Melissa Klein. Here's a quote from that piece titled, Students at 
NYC high school get third grade level lessons on Goldilocks. And I quote, juniors taking American literature at highly rated Edward R. Murrow High School in Brooklyn were tasked with a series of rudimentary assignments based on childhood fables and fairy tales, third grade level classwork that stunned critics and parents called educational neglect. It's like Brett Cooper was talking about in one of her short videos for the Daily Wire my wife and I were watching last night while our oldest son was working on some literature homework for uh, Ames. She's talking about, once again, you've got a story of a transgendered athlete, so-called, who's biological male, playing women's sports, dominating, absolutely killing it, breaking records. He's in Washington State. Where else? Exactly nobody is surprised. But parents of the daughters who are competing are terrified to say anything. Somebody else is just going to have to deal with it, I guess. Except nobody else will, so it's just going to get worse and worse until parents take the initiative. But just like men are checking out of the workforce, you also have fathers checking out of, and not not just recently, but for a long time, checking out of their role as fathers, not teaching, not instructing, not disciplining, not correcting. Proverbs 3, 9 through 12 is worth a mention here. Honor Yahweh with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise Yahweh's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For Yahweh reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. If I love my sons, I correct them. And if somebody is getting after my kids in a way that is wrongheaded, evil, corrupt, cruel, damaging to them, if the deck is being stacked against my kids being successful and they're doing their level best, but they're being set up to fail or people are nitpicking or what have you, I have to know, right? I have to figure out, is this an instance of needing to discipline my child or is this a need for me to step into a gap and have my son's back, my daughter's back? This is why we homeschool, by the way, in case I haven't mentioned that recently. These things are all very closely related. Actually, this is where the rubber meets the road, and I've got to wrap this up and go enjoy our Thanksgiving. If we're not thankful for what a blessing it is to have a family, to have a home, to have opportunity for employment, to have a voice, to be able to speak up, to be reasonable, to let our reasonableness be known to all, if we're not thankful even for the challenges of being sick for now a week, if we're not thankful, well, then we will squander. But the reason why Thanksgiving is so important, it's not important because, boy, howdy, we just really need to take another day of the year to say so much good about America. And I don't want to get into, one way or the other, all the scandal about Thanksgiving getting canceled and all that. You know what? Here's some passages from the scriptures explaining the appropriateness, the needfulness of giving thanks. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. First Chronicles 16.34 or Psalm 7.17. I will give thanks to the Lord. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Or how about... Psalm 50, 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me to one who orders his way rightly. I will show the salvation of God. 
Or how about Ephesians 5.4? Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Old Testament, New Testament, we see this again and again, this idea that we are giving thanks to God. We are worshiping when we give thanks. We are also giving credit. We are also acknowledging that God gives good gifts and that God is, more to the point, good. How we relate to these things also matters very much. Not that we just thank God for them and then we let them go to waste, we destroy them, treat them with contempt. No, no, we give thanks and then we enjoy what it is that God has given us. If God has given us the wherewithal to have turkey and stuffing and mashed potatoes and sweet potato casserole and all the rest as a family, give thanks to God and then enjoy it together as a family. That's appropriate. That's not untoward. That's not corrupt. See, to think that it is or to come up with ways to try and spiritualize that in any way, shape, or form, I think that's why so many men are checking out of the workforce. I think that's why so many men are checking out when it comes to how their children are being educated and trained up. I think that's why so many men are just not able to have kids like men used to be able to. We are disinterested. We are not thankful. We are not grateful. We are a murmuring, mumbling, grumbling, complaining people. We need to have more thankfulness to God. And that thankfulness needs to not just be the words in our mouth. It needs to be the attitude of our heart. We're glad. We're glad that God has given us what he's given us. Even if it comes with trouble, trouble is opportunity in disguise, an opportunity to have our faith tested for one thing, the genuineness of it, the purity of it. These are things to be thankful for as well. And I was just explaining to my children last night over dinner. I said, Tomorrow we have Thanksgiving and we're still feeling sick and we're still recovering from being sick the past week or three. And even if we're still feeling sick tomorrow, we can give thanks because we're not always sick. Being sick helps you to appreciate all the more what a blessing it is to have health. Also, we're alive. We're alive. So be thankful. Be thankful for what we have. And you know what? I think if we are thanking the Lord for what we have, we might just find we have enough and Actually, we have far more than enough, and that God will give us more as we are faithful in living like, working like, acting like, talking like, thinking like we're thankful. How can I view this or that or the other that God has entrusted to me, blessed me with? How can I be thankful for it? Oh, you know what? There's another use for it, actually, which I hadn't thought of, but because I'm committed to giving thanks to God since he is due our rejoicing and our praise and our worship. You know what? Another reason to be thankful for this is, oh, let's let's use it for that good purpose, actually. He made it for a good purpose. He's given it to us. Let's use it for that. I think, and, and I'll just, I'll close with this. I think that if we embrace an attitude of thanksgiving, not just today, but every day, always, in all circumstances, we will find that the Overton window, what is considered acceptable discourse, will more closely align with whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. I think also, too, as we attend to our small piece, what the Lord has allotted to us, however much or little it seems at first blush, we can build 
a blessed life under God and by God's grace. The one who is faithful with little will be given even more and entrusted with more. I think also, too, in a good sense, that would take a lot of people by surprise. This is the right way for Christians to get political, first and foremost. It has to start here, not not at the macro. It has to start where the rubber meets the road on the individual blessings that God has given to us. It starts there and then scale it up. Don't start top down and then wait. Wait until you have everything. No, no. Start with what you have already from the Lord. Leverage that. God uses the weak things of the world. He uses the foolish things of the world. It doesn't mean we try to be weak and foolish, but it is to say, even if, even if we feel a lack of strength, a lack of all the answers, still trust God. Thank God. Don't imminentize the eschaton. No, no. But do, do live in light of eternity right now. Not to transcend humanity. No, God made humanity. Let's repent of our sins. Let's ask God for what it is that we need. Present all our requests to him. Make them known to him with thanksgiving. But we're not trying to transcend humanity. We are human by God's grace, made in God's image. We need to appreciate what that means and be thankful for it. It's a great, great honor. It's a great privilege. Also, too, bringing people into the world, bringing children into the world with the wife of your youth. That's a huge privilege and blessing and honor that God has given us. Work to provide for them, to serve them. That is also a great privilege and a great honor. So as for me and my house, that's our goal for today is to think on these things, to meditate on these things, to remind one another of these things, to enjoy a feast together, to continue getting over being sick. I think I might play some Settlers of Catan with my sons, make sure there isn't anything that my wife needs from us with the making of the meal, preparing of all that. But from my household to yours, happy Thanksgiving, not just today, but every day, always in all circumstances, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.